0: The Pew Bible has it on page 980, our text this morning. Philippians, we're going to look at verses 3 uh, through 11. There's a lot of great things that technology has done. Uh, It's given us a lot of opportunities and options. Uh, One of the things that dies, though, with technology is things like uh, the age-old art of, of cursive and handwriting and writing letters, right? Like actually writing correspondence letters to people. Uh, You know, people keep those as keepsakes. I don't know if we're going to keep a big long, you know, string of uh, texts and, you know, know, memes and all this other stuff digitally that we have in our correspondence with people. Uh, Maybe, but I'm guessing no. Uh, Last month I was reading in the uh, Boston Globe, maybe you saw it, that there was an auction uh, up in the city that was selling off some of the uh, personal effects of uh, JFK. And amongst them was a, a, a group of handwritten love letters uh, that he sent to this mistress, this Swedish lover. And uh, they're, all, they're all handwritten, and, uh, and they fetched a, a whopping uh, $88,000. Wow, right? And you think, well, that's sweet. You know, it's a, it's, a, you know it's, a, it's a love letter. It's expressive. Until you locate the context. He was Senator JFK at the time. He was also married two years into marriage and his wife had a miscarriage. You you can see this is uh, context is important, right? But, you know, another letter that fetched a lot more money was sold 10 years ago. This is the all time record. As far as I know, it's correspondence about something more wholesome. It's a a scientific discovery. Maybe some of you remember uh, the name uh, Watson and Crick, but uh, there was a, 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 a pair of uh, British uh, microbiologist, one of them was Francis Crick and his partner James Watson, and they discovered uh, the, the nature and the makeup of a molecule and the DNA, right? They, they, they discovered this, and to put it more bluntly, they really discovered how it is that we impart life one to another in this, Right through this, this DNA. It was their, their uh, discovery on that last day of February, 1953. They had this kind of, you know, voila moment when suddenly they realized how everything must fit together within the molecule, molecule for it to work. And so uh, Francis decided to write, as his custom was, a letter, and uh, to celebrate this, he wrote this letter to uh, his son, to Michael. Uh, who at the time was 12 years old? He was living off at a boarding school, and he 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 details a handwritten letter. His son loved uh, you know secret code and stuff like this. He knew it'd be fascinating. So he says, you know what? We've discovered something today, and uh, it's it's revolutionary. And he even drew on this handwritten note the what the double helix. Uh, he drew, he drew a sketch of it in this handwritten note to his son. It's probably the first and only major scientific discovery uh, that was. Uh, Taken to pen and first accounted with a letter that ends with lots, lots of love, Daddy. The letter, the letter, kid you not, fetched six million dollars at auction ten years ago. It's valuable to somebody. It is valuable, you know. Down through the ages, the years, correspondence from celebrities and leaders and scientists. Correspondence and letters have been sought after. The likes of Napoleon and Lincoln and Churchill and Einstein, they, they've been collected. They've been they've been preserved, they've been studied. People want to to research and take them apart. But out of all of that correspondence, and of all those people, none of them even comes close to the popularity and the wisdom that we see collected in the 13 letters written by this unlikely convert, convert that we now know as the Apostle Paul. None of it has been studied or valued as so greatly. And once again, context matters, right? Uh, the, the church in Philippi is who he writes to. It was a church that he has warm affection for, as we will discover. He has history with because uh, they were a people uh, who he, he uh, was instrumental in leading to faith and starting a small church in the city uh, amongst uh, a group of people and he stayed in touch with them and they were they were uh, in an ongoing way committed to him. And there was correspondence that went uh, back and forth. The church in, in Philippi, this Roman colony, was was was, you know, persecuted. They were threatened. They, they had things in opposition to them. And now, by the way, just another important detail of context, Paul, we know as a fact, he testifies, is writing this letter in prison. So he's in chains and shackles writing this letter, which comes, you know, it's an important point of reference when you think about kind of the theme and the reference for this letter. And inspired of God, what, you know, unlike, you know, celebrities or other leaders who may have no idea that there's, you know, their correspondence personally would be published uh, or valued. Paul did know that he, he knew it would be circulated. He even says in First Thessalonians, 2 that these are God's words inspired by. Of God, so he writes to the church in Philippi, and we're going to overlisten to this letter. I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. He writes with authority, he writes with tenderness, he writes with encouragement. Hear this, God's word. Philippians one. We'll look at verses three through eleven. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always and in every prayer of mine for you. All making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I told you in my heart, both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all affection of Christ Jesus And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask for his help. Father, thank you for an opportunity right now to reflect on your character and your wisdom. Thank you for using... Uh, human writers to help us to connect and understand. I pray that even now you'd clear away distraction so that uh, we, we would see and behold things by faith that you intend. We ask with confidence in Christ. Amen. There's just three avenues that I want to uh, to look at briefly as we uh, unpack this, as we explore the text. They're rather straightforward. Three questions are listed in the order of service there. The first is, why? Why is Paul thanking... The second question is, how is he feeling? And then the last question is, what exactly is Paul praying? Uh, the first question, why why why, is, why this, this thanksgiving? There's a deep relational history, but before I go into that, uh, let me just highlight, it's, it's right there in, in verse 3, that the thanks that he's giving is to God. He, he's grateful for them, but he is thanking God. God, the Creator and the Sustainer of all life, it is God. God is the one who directed Paul to that city some dozen or so years prior. It was not coincidental or accidental. It was it was even against Paul's original itinerary and plan. But in God's directing, in God's providence, he ends up in the city of Philippi and has this connection. Like I mentioned earlier, he planted the church there, and uh, and then later he's thrown into prison the apostle paul uh is not bound by chains god can override that indeed he does god you can read the full context in acts 16 he uh, sends an earthquake paul's uh, able to break free from the shackles and chains and uh and he's 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 free but they ask him to leave the city (laughs) and uh and he goes on his way and he stays in touch with the the church in philippi and he goes on to plant other churches he he writes to them and he, he wants them he wants to stay in touch because what? Verse five, he's thankful for their partnership. And this is not a business partnership, although it does involve an economic relationship because they were generous. They they, they gave to Paul's ministry and to, to sustain him, even at times when he was in prison like he is now. They they gave even sacrificially, generously to him. He, the, word there, that fellow, the, the word partnership there is koinonia, which is, is fellowship. It's a depth of fellowship and, and connection that is surrounding what does Paul write here? The, the good news, a partnership in the gospel, that uh, good and sweet news of God toward us. The second reason that he prays with thanksgiving to God is because he knows their sincerity. He knows their growth. He knows that their commitment to following Christ was a lasting one. Even in the face of of various temptations and threats, their faith was was steadfast. It wasn't flawless, but it was a faith that was steadfast. Okay, you know how I do this from time to time. Their world, our world, their world, God is at work. Our world, God is at work. God is at work in your life. Every one of you right now. Every every single one of you. Now you, you you know how it is. I, I know how it is. Sometimes I see it. Uh, sometimes I appreciate it. Uh, sometimes I I sometimes I experience it. Sometimes I resist God's working. Sometimes I ignore it. Sometimes I participate. Sometimes I just I I, I, I just want to walk away. I remember for quite some time I was sharing the gospel with our our neighbor uh, our previous neighbor and. Uh, and he, you know, it's not that he didn't believe in God. He did. He, he definitely believed that there was a God, uh, but he 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 kind of preferred a God that was I don't know how else to put it except say small and on the sidelines. And, and 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 he thought I was over the top about Jesus, and and that's okay. But one day I remember him re, uh, recounting to me uh, an event that happened in his life. He uh, the the weekend prior had been in a, a, a horrible accident, and he came away entirely unscathed, even though his car flipped over and he was hanging. Uh, you know, top down—you know, the, the wrong way. Wheels up, top down in the car. Broken glass, looking at oncoming traffic. And I looked at him. I said, "Danny, do you see the mercy of God in all this?" He said, "Yeah, I do. I—I I, I can't deny it. There's no explanation except that God spared me." I challenged him to consider what that would look like to respond to God's mercy. When a person encounters the true God, and surrenders to God the Son Jesus, which, by the way, you can do now, here, today, this very moment, to surrender your life to Christ. God wants, God designs and desires to come in and work. I don't know any other way to put it that He wants to to work and rework our priorities, our 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 lives, our actions, our our hearts. He he wants to affect change. And it's 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 almost like a a major home renovation. And except that it, 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 it also involves moving that house over to a new foundation altogether. Kind of like down you know on the corner in Hanover here. The, the the old barn that they turned into a, uh, where they're in the process of taking a while, you know, we get the update every Sunday we round that corner that, you know, the market down here You know, it's, it's, it doesn't look anything like the original barn I thought they were going to continue to use it because they lifted the whole thing up off the ground and they only kept a few small pieces of wood in the original but they spent a lot of work it's on a new foundation God doesn't want you to resemble somebody completely different as if you don't matter he, he, he wants to work in you to forge and to bring forth the things that are beautiful that reflect his image. His character that uses your personality and gifts and, and everything to bring forth praise. He wants to work in your life. Sometimes I get discouraged because I feel like I'm a mess. And we're kind of halfway through a renovation and i've just screwed up again i've knocked over all the scaffolding and paint and siding and tools and screws and everything are just scattered all over the yard in my own sin and selfishness i know i screw things up speaking of remodeling i saw an advertisement for a guy who was a handyman and he said are you having a hard time getting contractors to call you back they're kind of busy right now uh you know, he, he of course that there's that tagline: no small, no job too small, no job too big. When a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they cry out to God for help, and God comes in, so to speak. And every analogy breaks down, but I still love him, right, Jay? Uh, <laughs> Jay's the king of of, of analogies, and uh, I, I think of God. It's as if a a general contractor, he comes in and you don't have a hard time accessing him and he doesn't want any money up front. And he comes into our lives and and he he starts to renovate. He's there every day. (laughs) Sometimes it's surprising times in places we didn't anticipate. Sometimes God's taking down parts that we thought, couldn't we just leave that there? I've grown extremely comfortable with that. He says, no, it looks good on the outside, but I'm telling you, there's rot and mold behind that. We're tearing it down in love. What does he ask from us? Trust. Surrender. It's his work. It's not your work. You didn't hire him. It's his work. And that's why verse six tells us so explicitly, Paul writes of them. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, not talking about him, talking about God, will bring it to completion to the day at the day of Christ Jesus. How's he feeling? I've already kind of spilled over to this question. But how is Paul feeling toward them? Well, the first thing he, we can see here clearly is that he has confidence That he has a sense of assurance. God wants the Christians in Philippi to know and experience this assurance as well. This encouragement and confidence for you as well, followers of Christ many millennia later. I said earlier that the Philippians' faith was, was steadfast. But who's holding fast? You you know what it's like if you see a child, like a really small child and uh, not an above average child, which all of you people think yours is. But just just a toddler in the water with no life vest on. It's a scary sight. I I know I was a lifeguard for many years. It's a completely different story if the child without life vest is being held by the parent. Right. Right. And you know, what it's, you know what it's like. You'll probably see it this summer at the water park, at the beach or whatever in the wave pool. You'll see a child and, and they will be holding on with a, a death grip seen by no other as if their life very depended on it. And it does not because it's the strength of the parent's arm that holds them. Stop thinking about the beach. Uh, Think about this promise. Let me just read it again. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Hebrews 12, that we love him because he first loved us. And that love, by the way, spills over. It does for Paul. It's one of the reasons that he even expresses this next feeling, which is a fond, deep affection for the people. What does he say? Verse seven, I hold you in my heart. Verse eight, he says, I yearn for you all, which is quite strange. It's it's probably unimaginable for Paul himself. I mean, if if you had told him that he would be writing this letter dozens of years prior, he would have been like, no way. I hate Christians. Are you crazy? And now they're his family. He speaks of them in in a relational term that is bonded by by blood, Christ's blood, not biological DNA. The other feeling that Paul has, and I, I just skimmed over verse four, is something that is mentioned there but mentioned all throughout the letter and it is joy he is experiencing joy verse verse four always in every prayer of mine making with making all my prayer with joy we already talked about that in part last week of course our happiness in life is an emotion uh it's 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 a natural emotion. It's a natural emotion when things are going really well. It's it's a natural emotion that vacates when things are not going well circumstantially. Wow, that's profound. Um, Our happiness is an emotion, but joy is no mere emotion. I'm not saying it's not at all, but it's no mere emotion. That's obvious because Paul is writing this from prison. And he's not loathing and whining and grumbling. He has joy that's spilling over, encouraging them towards joy. I said this last week, and I just have to revisit it. Joy is a spiritual grace. It's not. Joy is a spiritual grace. It is not a circumstantial coincidence. True joy. It cannot be lost. True joy because it's from God. It's natural for something to rob our joy, but not. But not God. And we need to hear this in a world that's filled with a lot of uncertainty. Disappointment. Broken trust. Broken promises. Uncertainty. Stress. Anxiety. There is a blessing. There is a, a greeting that the whole letter started with grace and peace to you in Christ. That comes to us. And it, it translates over into joy. A joy that is authored and anchored. Not in the natural, but in the supernatural. Outside of us. We said it last week, the quote from C.S. Lewis Don't let your happiness depend on something you can lose. You can just put joy in there. Don't let your joy depend upon something that you could lose. Last question What is Paul praying? That's where verses 9 through 11 come in. He's He's praying that they will have an abounding love for one another. This is this is not romantic love. This is th- this is humble, sacrificial love that produces things like unity. But lest we uh, agree with the Beatles, all we need is love. <laughs> Paul Paul is very clear that there's something uh, something more. Let's look at it together. My prayer, verse nine, is that your love may abound more and more. And then he couples it with knowledge and all. Discernment. A, a while back, I was o- over in Marshfield at the the, uh, the drive through car wash and uh, we were in line and the, the lady in front of me in her, her little mini SUV uh, um, was was there with her window down. She was giving payment. And then the guy says, pull forward and uh, and then put it in neutral and take your foot off the brake to make sure it's in neutral. Boosh! She lunges forward and I see her practically disappear into, you know, the uh, as if she's going to just take out the whole car wash. And the last glimpse that I get of that car lunging forward is her bumper sticker. And here's what it says. Stupidity kills. (laughs) True story. True story. I don't know if she understood the irony of the whole situation, but from my vantage point, it was pretty profound. So all this to say, uh, why would we why would we desire knowledge and discernment? I mean, there's a there's a whole list of reasons that we should desire for us, for for people, for our families and we want we want knowledge and discernment. Why? It should not be just for self-preservation. That would be a self-centered discernment and knowledge. It's not to be something that just keeps us from looking stupid or or dying in an uh, avoidable accident. The discernment and knowledge that he prays for. And by the way, all all of us fail. Every one of us to a person ends up doing things we regret. We make decisions that proved foolish and we say to ourselves, what I should have should have known better. The sermon involves more than the knowledge of good, better, best. It involves more than the knowledge of what is right and wrong. It's not less than that, but it's more. I hope that makes sense. Sermon and knowledge from God. Paul's reason is grounded somewhere else. Let's read together verse 10, part of 11 so that, he prays for this knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's ethical. It's, it's, it's moral. It, it's, here, Paul is somewhat future-looking. This, this is a knowledge and discernment. This is a work of God that produces Transformation. Yeah, I know. You list those kind of things. Ooh, righteousness. It almost sounds self-righteous. It sounds boring. It sounds nerdy. It sounds stodgy. Irrelevant. But I'm telling you, it is relevant. And here's why. You think about our culture. You think you can you can contemplate the trajectory of so much of what we see in the desire for self-fulfillment and self-expression and self-indulgence on a destructive path. Don't tell me these virtues are irrelevant. For Paul to pray these things, as one commentator Dennis Johnson put it so well, Paul was boldly countercultural. He was not preoccupied over the latest fad that the Greco-Roman high society was a buzz about. He loved the Philippian, his Philippian friends enough to lift their sight to a coming day, the day of Christ, quote, when Jesus, the Lord of the universe, will return in power and glory on that day. It will be obvious that the treasures marketed by marketed by filmmakers, automakers, fashion designers, entertainers, the movers and shakers in business or the in crowd on campus are cheap trinkets that cannot last. Then everyone will stand before God's throne, compelled to look into the soul piercing eyes and to realize that he reads every hidden thought and shameful secret. Am, are you with me? If you if you fell asleep, would you please wake up two times? This phrase is mentioned in verse six and verse ten. It is the day of Christ. It's coming and he is a blameless Judge and we desperately need a new and different record than our own i do you may not be comfortable with what i just said but it is either dead true or dead false wrong not 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 a, not a thing in between And every bit of it hinges on this whether or not Jesus is dead or whether he is alive. Pastor Tim Keller, in a book, The Reason for God, writes this If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, Well, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. In the opening of this letter, Paul kind of foreshadows different themes that he has in in view and in mind coming up. Unity, joy affection, love. But Paul knows it's not about him and it's not about them and it's not about us. It's all centered on the God-man. If you take apart the first portion, these 11 verses of his letter, it, it's, it's no secret. It, it's, it's on display. Verse 1, Of Christ. In Christ, verse two, Lord Jesus Christ, verse six, day of Christ, verse eight, affection of Christ, verse 10, day of Christ, verse 11, through Christ. A little over the top, don't you think? You know, I was cool with the God thing. I'm I'm okay with spirituality. I'm even I'm even up for a moral lesson. But we're taking Jesus just a little too serious. Famous Scottish pastor Ian McLaren, who had a pen name because he was a novelist as well. He, he was dismissive of Jesus for a season of his life. Partly out of of false assumptions and ignorance about the true person of Jesus. But once he began to study and apply himself to understand Christ, he writes this. He found surprises. I found that Jesus was full of surprises, he writes, but they were all surprises of perfection. I found tenderness without being weak, strength without being coarse, lowliness without being servile. He had conviction without intolerance, enthusiasm without without fanaticism, holiness without Phariseeism, passion without prejudice. This man alone never made a false step. No one has yet discovered what Jesus ought to have said. I want to know this man. I want to follow Jesus. Do you? If you do, here's my prayer. Maybe you would pray it yourself. I know that I'm a mess with sin and and blame and guilt. I know that I'm forgiven because of the life and the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. And when he returns, I want to have fruit to show. And I know that I can't tie that on or manufacture that fruit. And that's why Paul prays in this very last verse. It's so fitting, his desire, verse 11, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Don't miss it. That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Only through and with Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are the fountain of life and wisdom and discernment and yes, joy. Perfect in all your ways, Lord, forgive us for trying to mine down or manufacture joy and wisdom elsewhere. Help us, everyone here, myself very much included, to see and value and appreciate and cherish that, that by the power of your spirit, the perfections of Jesus. Give clarity, Lord, and faith to those who perhaps are, are far away. I, I pray you give assurance to those who are struggling with doubts. Practically, Lord, personally, with, with your own angels, Lord, your messengers, please draw near to those who are struggling today. Maybe in the, in the valley of, of pain or uncertainty or grief, temptation, pain, chronic pain, conflicts that they have in their own family, Lord, There are are many hardships in this broken world. We're in the world. But thank you for offering a way that we can be in Christ. For we pray even now as Christ taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven,